Good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, Elizabeth, my wife, and I counted a privilege uh, to be with you this weekend. Um, we, we have three children. Martin, who served in the U.S. Marines and is now a college student. Um, our daughter, Beth, who's uh, in college and getting ready to get married on New Year's Eve. I'm doing the officiating at the wedding, and I've got to figure out how I'm going to work the walking down the aisle and then turning around. Um, and then we, we have our third born, who just, who just started college in Indiana. Um, our three kids can't be here, but uh, they remember this church. And it's, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be here, and we're very, very grateful for your support your prayers, your gifts, um, your concern for us over the years as we've gone through uh, wonderful, easy, encouraging times and also some rather difficult times in, in Africa. We've been serving for about 15 years on the continent of Africa in different theological colleges and now at Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology, um, which this year reached the milestone of being granted a government charter as a university. So big things are, are happening at that school. We just graduated our first PhD students this year. Um, we are in, encouraged by what the Lord is doing. But my task this morning is not to bring a report, but to bring God's word. I'd ask you to turn uh, to the book of Jonah. I teach Old Testament and Hebrew, and the last three messages that I have preached here at this church have been on the New Testament. Things have to change. Uh, the book of Jonah. Our text is chapter 2, but I'm going to be reading chapters 1 and 2 so that we can get the context. And it's quite a story. I think we could all agree on that. It's quite a story. Jonah the prophet... Uh, meant to be carrying God's word to the people of Nineveh in the empire of Assyria, defies the very word of God he's supposed to be bringing and runs off in another direction. Um, Jonah the prophet needed to be saved, didn't he? Uh, quite a contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet who brings salvation. The book of Jonah is very much a book of salvation, a book about salvation. There's this terrible storm whipped up in chapter 1, and the sailors, the pagan sailors, cry out to their gods for salvation. Eventually, they cry out to the god of Jonah, and they find salvation. Jonah, thrown overboard, needs salvation, doesn't he? He cries out to God and he finds it. The people of Nineveh are threatened with imminent judgment. They cry out to God and are saved. It's a book, it's a book about salvation. Jonah, chapters 1 and 2. Pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, modern-day Spain, we believe, sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead... The men did their best to row back to land. Seems that they're trying to save themselves, aren't they? But they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple 
The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, our desire is that we might understand the story of the Old Testament, understand what happened to Jonah, how he cried out to you, and how he was saved. But most importantly, we desire to get a fresh look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet who did not run away from his mission, the prophet who was obedient even unto the death of the cross that we might be saved. We thank you for his his dying love, his undying love for us sinners. And we ask that you would give us uh, faith and repentance this day that we might follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It was February 1891. There was a whaling ship off of the Falkland Islands. And the lookout of that ship, called the Star of the East, spotted a sperm whale three miles off. Boats were launched with harpooners, and one of the harpooners uh, was able to spear the whale, the huge whale. The second boat attacked the whale, and with a lash of the huge tail, the boat was shattered and the men were thrown into the ocean. One of the men drowned. Another man, by the name of James Bartley, disappeared. Couldn't find him anywhere. The whale was killed, and in a few hours it was lying beside the ship, and the sailors got to work with their, um, with their spades and with their axes, their sharp knives, removing huge slabs of blubber off of this whale. They worked all day, part of the night. The next day, they used the ship's tackle to hoist the stomach of the great whale onto the ship deck. And the sailors were stunned to see spasmodic signs of life inside the stomach. This is a true story, I assure you. They cut the stomach open. And what did they find? The doubled-up sailor, unconscious. He was laid on the deck, and he was treated to a bath of seawater, 
which quickly revived him. But he remained for two weeks a raving madman. But at the end of the third week, he had actually recovered his senses and was back on duty on the ship. What a story he tells. Bartley affirms that he would probably have lived inside that fish until he had starved because he had lost consciousness not due to lack of, of air, but because he was so terrified. He remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat into the sea, and he was then encompassed by a great darkness. He felt himself slipping along a smooth passage that seemed to carry him along. The sensation lasted but a short time, and then he felt like he had more room. <laughs> it's true, I'm telling you. <laughs> he felt about him, and his hands came in contact with a yielding, slimy surface that seemed to shrink from his touch. And it dawned on him, he had been swallowed by that whale. He could easily breathe, but the heat was terrible. It wasn't a, a, a scorching, stifling sort of heat, no, but it, it was an oppressive heat that seemed to open the pores of his skin and draw out his vitality. His skin was exposed to the gastric juices so that his face, his neck, his hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment. They never recovered their natural appearance. But otherwise, his health didn't seem to be adversely affected. Preachers tell stories like this. This is a true story, yes to authenticate the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah has been attacked for so, so long. Um, people fight over this book. Many unbelievers have scorned the book as a big fishtail. Impossible fishtail. Good only for entertaining children. They scoff, who could ever believe such a story? I will admit that this is, the story of Jonah is an extraordinary tale, but there are many reasons to believe that it actually happened. We could spend all, all of our time this morning talking about reasons to believe the story, but we won't. Let me just share two reasons with you um, why I think uh, we ought to believe. The first is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who believed the scriptures and gave this story the, credit high, uh, the, the highest credit rating, um, he, he obviously believed the story, as he says in Matthew 12, 40, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, and so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus believed this story. But a second reason to believe this book, to believe the story, has to do with God's might. I don't think that it makes any sense 
to believe that God created the universe and that God could raise the dead, raise his son after crucifixion and then doubt that God has the power to do this sort of thing, to save a wayward prophet. I think we could say that this fish was uh, the most criticized creature that ever swam in the sea. But we should be careful about talking too much about the big fish. This story is not about the big fish. Never called a whale, by the way. It's only mentioned three times. It's only mentioned three times. Listen to what um, a great man of God said decades ago. People have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Yes, there is a miracle here as God in his power saves Jonah's life. We read there in chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord provided the great fish to swallow Jonah. But there's an even greater miracle, I believe, in chapter 2. The greatest miracle took place, not in the heart of a fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. What you need to understand is that a great deal happened between the time that Jonah was pitched overboard and his being swallowed by the fish in chapter 1, verse 17. A great deal happened. We learn about what happened in chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Jonah is inside the fish, and he's praying a prayer. Actually, we can refer to Jonah chapter 2 as a psalm. It reads very much like one of the psalms. And specifically, it is a psalm of thanksgiving. You usually think of the ride in the fish that I'm calling Jonah's return ticket. You usually think of the ride in the fish as punishment, don't you? But it's actually Jonah's salvation. What, what happened to Jonah after he was thrown into the ocean? As he disappeared below the waves, the storm broke and everything was calm for, for the sailors. We learn um, in chapter 1 that those sailors were brought to some kind of faith. But what about Jonah? What about Jonah? The sailors certainly believed that God had drowned his rebellious prophet. But what happened to him? Jonah was filled with feelings of helplessness and panic. I try to use my sanctified imagination. Jonah is looking out on these waves that are pitching up and down, perhaps nearly the size of mountains around him, crashing down on the ship. The sailors around him trembling with fear probably very cold as well from all the water. And Jonah is picked up and he sees the waves that he's about to be thrown into. What panic must have grabbed a hold of Jonah? 
And his anxiety must have grown as he realized that the sailors weren't the ones throwing him in, really. What does Jonah say in verse 3? Chapter 2, verse 3. Who threw him into the Mediterranean? Who did? God did. God took Jonah off that boat. God put an end to Jonah's running away. God was punishing him, I think. Jonah knew why he was in big trouble. He knew that he was the the one to blame. He had rebelled against God's word. And it really is ironic. The prophet to whom God's word had been committed is rebelling against God and his word. The lesson we should all learn, the first point this morning, is that God will often bring us low when we sin. He will show us what sin really means. He'll show us the consequences of sin, the misery that it brings into our lives. He does this in order to draw us away from temptation. He shows us what the consequences are of playing with sin so that we'll stop playing the game. When I was a little boy, my parents took me to a beach in, in Maryland. Uh, it's, it's got a biblical name called Rehoboth. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that the beach uh, there had been spoiled by a hurricane that had blown through a year or two before, I believe. I was used to this beautiful beach in New Jersey called Stone Harbor, where a little kid like me could walk out into the surf 50 or 60 yards. It was perfect. I thought Rehoboth is like Stone Harbor, and I run out into the surf as a very little boy. I don't know, maybe I was five years old. And there was a drop-off created by the hurricane, and I dropped off into deep water. Thank God, one person was watching, my uncle, and he ran out into the surf, dove into the deep water, and hauled me out. According to my parents, I came very close to drowning that day. God rescued me from that horrible experience. I think Jonah had a really horrible experience here, and he tells about it. In chapter 2, verse 5, the waves swept over him. The current swirled around him. The engulfing waters threatened me, he says. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. What did Jonah do at this point? As he goes down to the depths of his watery grave that he refers to in verse 2, He begins to lose consciousness, according to verse 7, when my life was ebbing away. He, if, if, if you were to read this in the original, it seems to be communicating that he's losing consciousness. He's having his last thoughts here. When this is happening, I remembered you, Lord. Why did it take so long? 
Why does it take us so long to remember the Lord when we get into trouble? As he goes down to the depths of his watery grave, he cries out to the Lord. He calls out to God for mercy. Can God save him? Perhaps the better question is this. Does God care to save him? After all, he's been running away. He's been rebelling, hasn't he? Defying God. And now he's going to call out to God for rescue? Does God care? There's a wonderful quote from one of the old Puritans named Sibs. There is more mercy in God than there is sin in us. Isn't that a wonderful thought? There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Does God care to save him from his disobedience? We'll discover he does. Sin, though, leads to helplessness. Feelings of helplessness, despair, leads to destruction, sometimes unspeakable trouble. It always does. Eventually, at least. Sin and trouble go together. Paul says in several places that sin and death always go together. You can't separate them. Ultimately, sin leads to death. And Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins and from death. Listen to what the Proverbs say. Proverbs 12, 13 the righteous man escapes trouble, but, Proverbs 12, 21, the wicked have their fill of trouble. Proverbs 22, 8, he who sows wickedness reaps trouble. I think that God has planned it this way. That sin will bring distress into our lives, will bring feelings of, of emptiness, feelings of shame. Sometimes we feel like we need to be saved from ourselves because we're our own worst enemy. God has planned things so that sin will oftentimes bring distress into our lives. And we can call it a merciful discipline. One one Christian writer famously called it a severe mercy. It's a kind punishment because if we didn't experience the consequences of our sins, we would likely continue in those sins and drift further and further away from God, which is the ultimate disaster, according to Scripture. To spare us disaster, God sometimes sends us trouble. He doesn't like troubling us, ever. But sometimes he'll send trouble into our lives, distressing circumstances into our lives for our good. I wonder, are you troubled by something today? Is there something causing you to lose sleep? Something making you fearful? God wants you to turn to him and find that he is, in the words of the psalmist, an ever-present help in trouble, always near, ready to rescue, ready to show you mercy and grace, even from the moment you call out to him. 
Sometimes it seems that God is preparing that salvation even before we call out to him for, for rescue. I think that God was preparing that fish, bringing that fish along to meet up with Jonah even before Jonah cried out to him. So much mercy in God. Crying out to God in trouble, we find a merciful God, and that's what Jonah did. We read in chapter 2 that Jonah is stuck in the whale. He's all alone with his thoughts, and he reflects on this whole experience. He tells us what happened. He tells us about how he was sinking down. He tells us about his panic, his feelings of helplessness. He felt not only that his life was about to end, but he also sensed that he was barred from God's presence, that God was not near. The second lesson that we learn in our text is that when we can't sink any lower, God will step in to rescue us if we call out to him. The whole message of the Bible can be summed up this way in the words of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Oh, how Jonah needed grace. Amen? Oh, how Jonah needed grace. Grace to turn from his evil ways. Grace to turn from rebelling against God's word, forgetting God, insisting on his own way, living for himself. He felt barred from God's presence, as I said just as the Ninevites would soon feel as though they were barred from God's presence. Jonah felt the absence of God from his life. He says in verse 4, I have been banished from your sight. Jonah was coming to see something of his own wretched condition, his spiritual bankruptcy, his emptiness. In all his distress, though, he finds that God is only a prayer away, so near, so quick to answer. And God isn't far from you if you'll call out to him. If you'll call out to him for help, he is so near. I can't promise you that you'll experience a miracle like Jonah. It's highly unlikely that a large fish is going to have a gut-wrenching experience just to rescue you. It's not going to happen. But God will have mercy on you. After you've sunk so low, God will hold you up. God is the one who can take all the shattered and scattered fragments of our lives and put them back together. If you're not yet a Christian, I can tell you that Jesus is the one to forgive your sins. Not only to forgive you your sins, but also to rescue you from the power of those sins. We have so many different kinds of addictions that they talk about, right? Today, addictions to this and that, and they seem to be coming up with new ones all the time. What are these addictions? Isn't it a form of slavery 
bondage, people unable to break free, and people have chosen these things, usually. There's so many, so many ways that people need to be rescued, not only from the penalty of sin, the condemnation of sin, but from its power. Jesus Christ can do that. If you're a Christian, perhaps your life is in disarray. You don't have things ordered. Things have gotten out of kilter. Call out to Jesus Christ. We call out to him for salvation. We keep coming to him. We keep coming to him. Because our life is hidden with Christ in God. Watch him restore things to order. He'll do that. Remember, the Lord provided the great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord heard Jonah's cry for mercy. The Lord commanded the fish to spit Jonah out. We can say, with Jonah, salvation comes from the Lord. But lastly, a, a, a third point. The last lesson of our text is that salvation is accompanied by great gratitude. What happened after the sailors called out to God and were saved? What happens? It, it strikes me as I read Jonah chapter 1 that the emotions in this text are so strong. They're terrified by the waves. They are even more terrified when Jonah tells them, I serve the Lord who made the seas and the land. What is their reaction after they are rescued? When the, when the sailors are rescued, when everything becomes calm, so much like the power of the Lord Jesus Christ when he stilled, stilled the waves on the Sea of Galilee, right? What is their reaction when everything is calm? The sailors in Jonah 2, the disciples in the Gospels, what is their reaction? They are absolutely awed and even more afraid. Because a storm is something that's fairly common. You're afraid because you're about to lose your life. But here, the sailors are obviously in the presence of the power of God. Nothing calms a storm like that. Only God can do it. The sailors respond with some fear, yes, but also with sacrifices of thanksgiving, and with vows, right? Vows that they are going to worship the Lord. We read Jonah 2. How does Jonah respond after he is rescued? What does he talk about? Verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Because salvation comes from the Lord. If someone really and truly gets rescued by God, there's going to be a response. There has to be a response. I believe that it's the response of gratitude. It's the response of making vows and keeping them. They may be vows of baptism. They may be vows of membership. 
They may be vows regarding what's called full-time Christian service. But, you, you know, we should think that all of us are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of life, right? He gave his all for us. We are to give our all back to him. We're all supposed to serve God, no matter what, uh, what sort of work we are doing, no matter what, what, what our relationships, where we're placed. We're all in full-time Christian service of a sort. Perhaps vows to repent of sin, to really be done with it. A little boy was asked, what is repentance? He gave one of the best definitions I've ever heard. Repentance is being sorry enough to stop. But sometimes, you know, we say, Lord, I'm going to stop. And then a few weeks later, we need to repent of our repentance. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't full. Vows, vows made, vows kept. Why? Why are they kept? Because of gratitude to God for what he has done in, in rescuing us. Once you've seen Jesus Christ suffering and dying for you, once you know that Jesus Christ is risen for you, you want to give him your life. One of the reformers had this as his private seal. I won't give you the Latin. Um, the, the translation of it is, my heart I give you, O Lord. I offer to you, O Lord, eagerly and sincerely. We give him our hearts. We give him our love. One hymn writer says this, Thou didst give thyself for me. Now I give myself to thee. Have we given ourselves back to God? For whatever it means, the night that I was converted at a boarding school in New York, I knew that I had to give myself to God no matter what it meant. I was going to be a lawyer. Um, but I gave myself to God, and I knew that it might mean the mission field. And I'm so glad that it did. I'm so much happier as a missionary <laughs> than I would have been as a lawyer. Not to say anything against you lawyers in the congregation. I know you're out there. giving ourselves to God, and God gives us a life. What an abundant life in Christ. So many blessings. Another pastor wrote this, Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Are we showing by our lives, by our love, by the way that we're involved in Christian service, by the way that we pray, by the way that we send... Uh, send out missionaries by the way that we give our witness locally? Are we showing by our lives how much we owe to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving us? Have you responded? Have you responded to God's saving grace in Jesus? Is there love? Is there gratitude? Does your life by its vow-keeping, prove that Christ has saved you, that you know him. There is no fuller life you can ever find 
than the one that Christ gives to his people as they trust in him. Let us pray.